Welcome to Between the Headphones, a Georgia sports podcast. I'm John James, sports editor at the Red and Black, and your host for this podcast series. Each week, I'll talk to Red and Black sports reporters to get the pulse of UGA athletics straight from the source. This week, I'll be joined by football beat writer Bo Underwood and tennis beat writer William Daughtry. Welcome to the show, Bo. Thank you for having me, John. It's draft week. We've done a little bit of draft preview content here at the Red and Black, but to officially prepare for the 2023 NFL Draft, I wanted to have one last podcast preview to wrap up all of our thoughts for the big event. I really liked the format that we went with last week, so we, we, we're using it again. Both prepared five predictions, and I prepared five predictions for the NFL Draft, and we are going on the record. If we get any of these wrong, feel free to email sports at rnb.com and yell at us to your heart's content. Anyway, without further ado, Bo, give me your first prediction. All right, my first prediction is Nolan Smith goes 10th to the Philadelphia Eagles. Okay, why is he going that high? I think it just makes too much sense for the Eagles and for Nolan Smith. Um, the Eagles already have N'Kobe Dean and Jordan Davis on their front seven. Those guys are both getting ready to step into much larger roles in their second year. And then you look at what the Eagles have on the edge, two veterans in Brandon Graham and Derek Barnett. And I think for both of them, their time in Philadelphia could be coming to a close pretty pretty soon after this year. So Philadelphia is going to be on the market for some new blood on the edge. Nolan Smith is a guy who can come in and sit behind the two two of them for a year, pick up the tools of the trade, and then eventually step into a starting role. Pretty much the same thing what we're seeing with Dean and Davis there now. We saw from the combine, obviously, that Nolan Smith has the potential to be one of the best speed rushers in the league. Just look up the numbers he put up. They're ridiculous. And, you know, since the Eagles are contenders, I don't think they mind taking a flyer in the top 10 on a guy that's not going to come in and be an impact player right away. But Nolan Smith... Super high upside. He could end up being a great piece for their defense. I would love him as an eagle. What distinguishes Nolan Smith from other edge rushers of that position? What? Why are they going to select him at number ten? Well, I think Anderson. The two, the top two edge rushers are Will Anderson and Tyree Wilson. Those guys are pretty much ninety nine percent going to both be off the board by the time the Eagles are picking. And then you know the other guys who are sort of up there with Nolan Smith. You have like a Lucas Van Ness who is a little bit more raw of a prospect that you don't really know if he's going to be a consistent edge. He's played inside, he's played outside. He's not as polished as Nolan Smith is. And plus, Nolan Smith just brings the whole element of leadership with him to the Eagles, where, you know, we saw after he got injured and was out for the year, he was still such a vocal leader on that team. And I think that's something that's going to really push him over the edge, no pun intended, with some of these other prospects. All right, my first prediction, I'm going with the other side of the bowl. I'm going with a guy who's had a, a lot of eyes on him over the past two years. Stetson Bennett will be a Washington commander. I'm not saying he's going in a specific round. I'm not saying he's going in a specific pick. But the commanders have six different draft picks from 100 to 230. So somewhere in that range, they're going to start thinking, ooh, we could use a quarterback. We've been kind in kind of a limbo at quarterback for the last few years. We really need someone at that position. Stetson Bennett is that guy. He has the pedigree to win at a high level. They're going to fall in love with that, and Stetson Bennett is going to Washington. Do you have any idea where? A lot of guys are low on Stetson. I'm thinking 
He has the proven track record of high-pressure performance. Mm -hmm. And I think that's enough to make a GM fall in love with him. I'm saying he's going around the 120 range. Bo, what is your next prediction? I think Jalen Carter falls out of the top five. All right. Talk me through it, Pat. So this all starts with the rumors that have come out recently surrounding the Houston Texans that, you know, they're sitting there at two. And this whole cycle has been, okay, the Texans are going to pick whoever the Colts don't pick between Stroud or Bresham. But apparently now they're thinking about passing on a quarterback. They don't really like C.J. Stroud. Maybe maybe it's because he has the same agent as Deshaun Watson. Maybe it's because he did really poorly on the S2 test. Who knows? But apparently he has fallen out of favor in Houston from from draft reports, which of course are not the most not known for being super reliable. But if there's any merit to those rumors, it's bad news for Jalen Carter. Will Anderson would probably most likely be the pick there. And then if Stroud, Levis, and Anthony Richardson are all on the board at three and four, teams are going to be chomping at the bit to trade up with the Colts and with the Cardinals. So those are pro- three and four could probably both be quarterbacks. And then at five, I would then slot Tyree Wilson there to Seattle because, you know, he's just a freak of nature, a safer prospect than Carter because of Carter's off the field troubles. So, and then all of a sudden, Jalen Carter there is now falling out of the top five. So I think he's probably the most talented player in the draft, but the quarterback climate in this draft class and then the off field issues, I think they're going to push him below where he should be picked. I'm not positive that Carter goes in the top five, though I think the teams that are picking in the top five will end up regretting it down the road if they if they pass on Jalen Carter. I absolutely agree. For my next prediction, I again I went on the other side of the ball. You're you're going defense. I've gone offense so far. I am saying that Bradrick Jones is the first tackle selected in the NFL draft. Now, the other guys might have might be a little more proven than Bradrick. But he's played in the best conference in football, and he's held up really well. He had that one horrible game against Missouri. That tape is not good, but he's the most athletic prospect in the draft, and that is going to attract some teams. It's going to make a lot of teams look on him favorably. I could get down with that. The only, I, that's just the only thing is that of all those guys who are supposed to be first-round tackles, you look at him, you look at, like, Paris Johnson, and then Darnell Wright, who Darnell Wright's upside is limited by the fact that he can only play on the right side. But Broderick just, he's played less snaps than all of them. So it just, it all depends on what you value versus, you know, experience or, like, oh, this guy is a freak of nature who played for Georgia. Like, Well, yeah, that, the freak of nature that played for Georgia is a proven commodity in the NFL. Look at Nolan. Yes. Look at how Nolan Smith is rising up draft boards literally right now. He tested incredibly well at the combine, and people were like, "Yeah, we believe in him because of that." Mm-hmm. Look at what happened to Trayvon Walker last year. He tested incredibly well at the combine, and though he wasn't the most productive player in college because he didn't play stay on the field as much as some of mm-hmm. the other guys, he went number one. I think the same thing can happen to Bradshaw this year, yeah. just because he tested so well, and even with the, the lack of production. They're they're gonna look they're gonna look Bradshaw and say that's a guy who can play on Sundays. Yeah, we we can see a very Andrew Thomas like progression from him in in this draft cycle because he all, Andrew Thomas is a guy who shot up boards pretty quickly too, so it's it, it's happened before. But what is your next prediction? All right, I'll finally make an offensive prediction and say 
I think Darnell Washington will fall out of the first round. Maybe not fall, because I don't think he's projected to go there too many times. But I know you see him as a first-round guy. So I think Darnell Washington does not go in the first round, but he's still the third tight end off the board. Darnell Washington has the raw ability to be the best tight end in the draft. But there are some question marks that he has that Dalton Kincaid and Michael Mayer just don't. Washington is probably the best blocker in the class. Uh, he's an extra lineman out there, basically. He's a refrigerator. But he doesn't have a ton of tape as a receiver. And then from what we do have, it's pretty clear he struggles as a route runner. He's obviously still super fast, good after the catch. He ran a, what, a 4-6, which is just, that should be illegal. But um, he just, he struggles to separate. He create He doesn't really create space. And that limits his upside a lot as a receiver and also just kind of limits his upside as like the prototype tight end in the NFL. And then compare that to Kincaid and Mayer, who are both competent at the worst blockers, and then they both run routes like receivers. And I think that's enough to get Washington out of the first round. I think the upside for Washington is that if he hits, he is the best out of the three players. He is far and away the best tight end blocker in the NFL, and he would be a top 10 receiver at his position. And I think that, that in, a, in a nutshell is better than the best-case scenario for either of the other guys. I would agree if Kincaid... I, I think Dalton Kincaid could become the best receiving tight end in the league. And and, and not maybe not year one, maybe not year two. He he has a far way to go just as a blocker before you can really have him on the field every down. But Kincaid and Mayer are both really good receiving tight end prospects. Washington, if he can just become a little better as a route runner, because right now it's he, he doesn't have a very deep tree... Yeah, I fully agree. He could become the best tight end in the league. It just depends on, you know, if he can fine-tune some of those rough parts of his game. All right, so you switched it over to offense for your third pick. I'm going to switch it over to defense for my third prediction. I think Christopher Smith is a day-two lock. What? Listen, the negatives to Christopher Smith are his athleticism, which is like the opposite of what we've been talking about for the players <laughs> so far. But at safety, you don't need that athleticism. He ran a 4-6 on the 40-yard dash. You know who else ran a 4-6 safety in the 40-yard dash? Ed Reed. The best free safety of all time was a 4-6. So it's not a necessity. What you need at safety is, is up here. It's your IQ. And Christopher Smith has IQ all over the field. He always knows what he's doing. He's a leader in the locker room. He is the leader on the defense. And that is going to make a team look at his tape and say, he is never caught off guard. And I think that's, if you're looking for a safety, you never want them to be caught off guard because they're the last line of the defense. Yeah, I, I mean, I, he is super, he's so, he's just so smart. He's so intelligent. I mean, he, he was basically the quarterback of our defense last year. It's just, I don't know, because his, his athleticism is just not there. And it's just, I don't know if how, with how much that NFL is changing and all you see all these hybrid safeties and these star position guys come in. Like, I don't know if you can really trust Chris Smith to play center field and be the last line of the defense in the NFL when he's going to get blown by every single time. I'll just almost, like... But I, I, I do really like Chris Smith. I, don't, I think it's kind of unfair. I think he's not talked about as much as he should be compared to some of these other prospects. But day two might be a little high for me. Day but I would love to see it happen. Day two lock. Mark, mark that in any book you want. I'll write that down. Go. <laughs> Who is your next prediction? 
Um, all right. I'm also going to talk about a Georgia player with uh, very limited athleticism, to put it nicely. I think you made a very specific Stetson Bennett prediction. I'm going to make an even more specific Stetson Bennett prediction. Stetson Bennett is going 199th overall to the Baltimore Ravens. Talk me through um, it, <laughs> This is one of my favorite team fits in the draft. Um, I don't see Stetson Bennett as a day two or even as an early day three guy just because he doesn't have any tangible traits that translate to the NFL. You know, The arm strength is not there. The pocket presence is not there. The size is certainly not there. Um, and that all sounds really harsh. But what he does have going for him is he, you know, he shows good anticipation in college. He has the ability to go through his reads. And he knows how to improvise in a pretty complicated pro-style offense. I don't think he gets enough credit for that. Um, so I, that's why I think he does. You know, He'll turn 26 in the middle of his rookie year. But I think he does have a future as a backup quarterback in the NFL. And you know, where better to go than Baltimore, where he's reunited with Todd Munkin, who got more out of Stetson Bennett in those couple years than probably any coach ever could. Um, I think it's a good fit, and it makes sense for Baltimore, too, who you know, they may or may not be needing more guys in the quarterback room, depending on what happens with Lamar Jackson. And it would, it would also, I have to point out, it would be really funny to see him go 199, the same spot that Tom Brady went in, because that would, that would start so many comparisons from Georgia fans that would, that would make me laugh all day. So I hope this happens. I think it has a good chance of happening. I think Todd Munkin and the Baltimore Ravens are probably the best case scenario for Stetson. Because, like, Stetson has been very honest. He said before Todd Munkin got to Georgia, he didn't know how to play football. <laughs> like, Todd Munkin was very instrumental in helping Stetson become the player that he is today. I just, honestly, I don't know if Stetson makes it that far. I think sixth round is the earliest I would ever pick Stetson Bennett. Listen, all it takes is one GM saying, I like the, I like the cut of Stetson Bennett's jib. <laughs> one, all, one person has to fall in love. That's all it takes. And I think one person is going to fall in love with Stetson before the sixth round. All right. My final prediction. My last guy was a guy with limited athleticism who had excellent tape. This next guy is another guy who had limited athleticism, but still really good tape. I think Kenny McDush slips to day three because mm -hmm. at running back, the athleticism is just yeah. so much. It's, it's so important. If you can't outrun guys at the running back position, if you can't bowl over guys at the running back position, you're going to have a hard time in the, in the NFL. And, like, Kenny McIntosh was my favorite player to watch last year. Anytime he got his hands on the ball, it felt like he was doing something. He was making somebody miss. He was running through contact. But at the NFL, they're just so much larger. They're so much faster. And I think Kenny's going to struggle with that. I, I actually completely agree. Like, there's a, there's a lot to like about Kenny McIntosh. He's so good out of the backfield. He's also just as, not only is he good out of the backfield, he is like a good downfield receiver. He's a good route runner on all any level of the field. But, yeah, I think he, I think it was he ran a 4-6-4, four, four, which if he had ran just a little faster, I think we're talking about him in a completely different sense. But, like, he just doesn't have that long run speed that you need. And uh, he just doesn't have that, that home run play speed where you pick up long gains on the ground. And without that there, you've already lost so much of your ceiling, so much of your upside as a running back. But, yeah, I think, I think it does push Kenny McIntosh to day three. But there's definitely room for him on an NFL roster somewhere. Kenny is easily one of the best receivers at the running back position in this draft. Oh, absolutely. But, like, 
James Cook was a receiver, and he's buried in buried yeah. in the depth chart. Like you need more than just the receiving ability to make it in the NFL. And I think Kenny is going to struggle to prove that he is more than just a receiver. Bo, do you have any final predictions or um, hot takes you want to drop? I I want to talk about Keely Ringo for a little bit because um, <laughs> we have. I mean, that's that's probably that's that we haven't mentioned him yet. Um, I think Keely Ringo is going to be drafted pretty early in the second round, but I think he's going to move to safety like pretty pretty soon after that. If it's not year one, it's going to be year two. He's another like really weird prospect to evaluate. We talked about these guys with little with low athleticism but really good tape. Ringo's the opposite of that. Ringo has the mate like Ringo is the prototype cornerback. He doesn't have very good tape sometimes. He didn't really show good ball skills and coverage. He tended to lose the ball in the air. He gave up a lot of big plays he probably shouldn't have been giving up. He has pretty stiff hips for a quarterback. He struggles changing direction. But he could really thrive as a safety because like he's a pretty smart player, except for you know his in the air instincts are kind of weird. He's a good hitter. He's a good tackler. He can he can move around the field pretty well, at least up and down laterally. It gets it gets, it gets funky, but um, I think if he lands with the right staff, he could definitely become a very good safety. Uh, in terms of team fits, I like Arizona, Seattle, Indianapolis. So, Keely Ringo is gonna have a very strange. Or NFL career, I think, but I think it's ultimately one where he ends up being a pretty good player. My opinions on Keeley at safety are definitely mixed because, like, he as a, as a free safety, you want him to have those ball skills. You want him to be able to play downfield, which he struggled with mm-hmm. in college. As a strong safety, you'd want him to be able to go up and man the line of scrimmage. You want him to hit people, and he never showed that physicality. I thought at the position, but like. You're not asked yeah. to do that that much at cornerback. So it's just, he might be able to do it. It's just something we haven't yeah. seen from him yet. So I, I think he could, he might be a good safety. I, I think he'd be a good cornerback, honestly. I don't, I don't know the eagerness for people to push him to safety. I just, when you haven't given him the chance at corner. He'll, he'll definitely get the chance there first. It, it's only, it, it's, it's fair that he deserves a chance there first because that's where he played in college. But I do think, I think with his size and his speed, I think he could become a really good hitter. I think, and I, if, if he were to play in a strong safety role or bo- or in, even like in the box, like he, he could surprise a lot of people. But we just, that is right. That's the part of his game we haven't really seen too much in college. And that's just, that's just from where he was playing. All right. First Bulldog off the board, Jalen Carter? Yes. Jalen Carter. Jalen Carter. Thanks for coming on the show, Bob. Thank you for having me, John. Now, you'll be joined by tennis beat writer William Daughtry. Welcome to the show, Will. Thank you for having me on, John. For our listeners who don't know, we're in the middle of an incredible season for Georgia tennis. The men's team went undefeated in conference play during the regular season, and the women's team just won the SEC tournament this past weekend. Start with the women because they just won a title. Were they one of the favorites for to win during the tournament, or was this kind of a, a Cinderella run for the Bulldogs? I would say it's somewhere in between a Cinderella run and you know favorites to win the tournament, only because the women's team they came in twelve and one. Their only loss was to Texas A and M. I would say if you were to ask thirty pundits. All 30 probably would have said A&M would beat Georgia in the final only because they beat a, uh, they beat the women's team 5-2 to two, uh, earlier in the season. 
and Georgia, it just always seemed like throughout the year, there was a tier where it was North Carolina, A&M, drop-off tier, and then you had Michigan, Georgia, NC State. Teams like that, I would say it was a shock that they won the title, but as far as making it there, uh, there were no doubts. Was that run through the tournament, you said there were no doubts, was it just dominance all the way through, or was it kind of a series of close calls? It was weird because the women's team played three top 50 matches, I mean, back to back to back. You're talking about LSU was ranked number 47 in the nation, beat them 4-0. I mean, four up, four down, won the doubles point, obviously. And then Tennessee, ranked number 15, Tennessee got the doubles point over the women's team, and they still won four out of six doubles to win 4-2. And then A and M one four two over the number two team in the country. I mean, I wouldn't call it uh, utter dominance, only because LSU A and M. So many things can fall so many different ways, especially A and M gets a doubles point. It's tied three three, but I would say they looked really good throughout the entire tournament. I want to talk about some of the players on the team in particular. Mm-hmm. Is it a group of talented veteran? like elite veterans who have been on the team for a while or is it a bunch of eager newcomers on the roster so their team is kind of a mix of both it's a little bit weird um very different from the men's team i'll say because the only seniors they have they have lee ma and then they have graduate senior mick walski who it was just absolutely instrumental in that last win against a&m clinching the doubles and overall match and then you have a lot of sophomores and one outstanding freshman, Anastasia Lapata. But, I mean, Daisha, Mel Riosco, and Guermina Grant, all sophomores. So I think this team is set up to be very, very good for the next two, three years at the least. So I'll say it's about a mix of eager newcomers and talented veterans. Before we get to the next two or three years, though, They've got a national tournament to play in. Who should they be watching out for on that national stage? They'll probably be seeded. Probably top five, I would say four would be my prediction as it stands today. There are a lot of conference tournaments left to play this week. When they get to the quarterfinals, I'll say they'll probably have to play NC State, who just knocked off North Carolina. North Carolina was 29-0 heading into the ACC tournament. That would be an outstanding match to watch between Georgia and NC State in the quarterfinals down in Orlando. Before then, I mean, so many conferences, 31 total, get auto bids. I think that the women's team will have a breeze getting to the round of 16. I mean, I don't mean to sound rude to the other women who are competing in this tournament, but in round of 16, I think they'll be playing Oklahoma, Miami-esque team. And I just don't see, especially if it's going to be in Athens, I don't see either of them really putting up a fight before the quarterfinals. Switching over to the men now, the team suffered heartbreaking collapse in a tiebreaker uh, in the SEC championship final. What went wrong in that game? Just so many things. I mean, I was watching it on SEC Network, and we won the doubles. The men's tennis team won the doubles point. And they were 14-1 and when winning the doubles point um, heading into that match. I mean, it was, it was almost like when they won the doubles point, it was like a lock. It was a guarantee that they were going to win, especially how deep the men's team is on all six courts. I mean, we have fifth-year, they have fifth-year senior Teodor Juska playing on court six, right? 
and obviously he's really good. What went wrong, I'll say Philip Henning losing on court two to Aini of Kentucky, that just gave so much momentum to Kentucky because Aini is a very hyper, very um, boisterous player, and obviously that's great to get energy going within the team. They cut the lead down to three to two. Um, the Georgia men's tennis team's up a break on courts four and five with Kreuter and Perez-Pena, and they both lose simultaneously. I think that was the turning point where Kentucky said, yeah, we can win this match. We're down 3-2. We were down 3-1. This is ours for the taking. We're on serve, tied 5-5, and obviously Kreuter lost back-to-back -back games to lose his third set, and then it came down to Perez-Pena, which is just such a such a high-pressure spot for a sophomore like him to be in, you know? I mean, it was, and he was going against a freshman, Jaden Weeks, I know, but, yeah, I mean, just a lot of things went wrong. It seemed like opportunities dwindled as the match went on. Walk us through the Bulldogs' path to get to that point and the SEC championship. Getting to that point was a much better ride than uh, the final result of that individual match because they lost to TCU 5-0 to in the ITA Indoor National Championships. After that, they just went on a 15-game winning streak. They beat USC, who's now number 11 in the nation, probably favorites to win Pac-12 later this week. And then they won, what, 12 straight conference games plus the first two rounds of the SEC tournament. So this is a group that's gone through... They're very resilient. They've gone through a lot of adversity. They were 5-5 five and five at one point this year. And then heading into that Kentucky match, they were 20-5. and five. I mean, if you were to tell anyone that Georgia was going to be 20-5, and five, after losing, to getting crushed by TCU, who is now the number three team in the nation, they probably wouldn't have believed you. So this is a team that I think had a lot of resolve throughout the year, and I think that this loss could serve them well. Entering the SEC tournament, was Georgia like the clear favorite to win, or were there a couple more contenders in the field? So obviously the SEC is just such a deep conference tennis-wise. I mean, I want to say every team but Arkansas is ranked in the top 75. But, yeah, I mean, you go 12-0 and in conference play, yeah, you're the clear-cut favorite. I mean, they beat Kentucky 5-2 to here in Athens um, less than a month ago, and it almost seemed like the top four, South Carolina, Tennessee, Kentucky, Georgia, the top four seeds – they were just on a collision course to get to the semifinals. South Carolina got upset in the quarters by A&M. And, yeah, it was kind of the same as the women's for the first two rounds because Georgia really didn't struggle against Florida 1-4-0, and then they played A&M 1-4-0. So it really seemed like, yeah, this team's about to go, like, you know, saw blade through the entire conference again in the tournament. But... Yeah, I mean, I didn't see it coming. I asked this for the women's team, so I'll ask it again here. What's been the story of a team this year? Is it a bunch of new blood catching opponents off guard, or is it like battle-tested experience leading to wins? So the story of the team this year, obviously everybody knows Ethan Quinn. You know, he's a freshman. But this team is definitely driven by battle-tested veterans. I mean, they have five fifth-year seniors. All five of them play doubles, four of them play singles. This is a team that, and they're all fifth years, they are all using their extra COVID year. This is a team 
that wants it right now. This is their send-off year, and I mean, they're number four in the nation right now. They're wanting to go take the entire thing, and I'll say they are who drives this team. So that was Georgia's first conference loss this year. What's what's the key to rebounding from that defeat for this team? There are a few keys from the match. Obviously, Kentucky really loved rushing the net, and it seemed like Georgia didn't really have a defense for that. Um, I will say the key to bouncing back is going to be trusting Diaz. I mean, he's the longest-tenured coach in the SEC. He's been here 35 years. I'll say you just got to trust Diaz to get back at the McGill Complex, coach these guys up, get ready for the first and second rounds here in Athens two weeks from now. That's going to be the key. And I'll say just, I mean, kind of trust in your guys that they're, they're going to want it more than the other team, especially being driven by fifth-year seniors. If the Bulldogs want to come back from this loss, who are some of the teams that they'll need to beat when the NCAA tournament rolls around? Obviously, I mentioned earlier, TCU uh, beat them 5-0 two months ago in the ITA indoors. They would probably see TCU in the semifinals or finals, depending on how the bracket shakes up, and obviously assuming that they win. They'll probably see Kentucky again in the quarterfinals because I would imagine Georgia would get seated somewhere around five, Kentucky somewhere around four. You're talking about Georgia and Kentucky win their first three matches all at home. They'll be on a collision course to play each other again in the quarterfinals. That's a match that if I were a fan of either teams, I'd be circling my calendar because just what amazing tennis those both those teams put on in the SEC championship game. So I'll say Kentucky, TCU, and Texas. Texas is another big hitter coming out the Big 12. They split the season series with TCU 2-2, two to two, and they were ranked number one before TCU knocked them off in the Big 12 championship. And then, of course, you can never discount Virginia, the defending champs. So what do you think, Will? Does Georgia have the talent, the experience necessary to go all the way in the NCAA tournament? I think they do. They have all the talent in the world. I think as long as you have Ethan Quinn anchoring that court one spot and then in doubles with Trent Bride anchoring court one, you've always got a chance, right? And then if you're driven by all these fifth-year seniors, I mean, they have, I'm trying to count right now, four, five guys ranked in the top 125 singles. I mean, just a really deep roster. I think they have the talent to go toe-to-toe with anybody in the nation. Thanks for coming on the show, Will. Thank you, John. Thanks for listening to Between the Headphones. I'm John James. You can find more episodes wherever you get your podcasts and at redandblack.com. For even more Georgia sports coverage, visit redandblack.com slash sports. We'll tee it up Between the Headphones again next week.